0: We are living through strange days. Across Britain, Europe and America, societies have become split and polarised, not just in politics, but across the whole culture. There is anger at the inequality and the ever-growing corruption and a widespread distrust of the elites. Yet, at the same time, there is a paralysis, a sense that no-one knows how to escape from this. Even in America, where there is now hope with the new president, there are also fears that, despite the growing crisis, the system will just return to normal. This paralysis is also fueled by a technology driven by the aim of giving you today another version of what you had yesterday. And never a different tomorrow. films are a history of how we got to this place and why both those in power and we find it so difficult to move on. They will trace different forces across the world that have led to now. Not just in the West, but in China and Russia as well. And they are told in a different way. They are an emotional history of what went on inside the heads of all kinds of people. Because in the age of the individual, what you felt and what you wanted and what you dreamed of were going to become the driving force across the world. And to understand the present, you have to go back and see what happened when those hopes and dreams and uncertainties inside people's minds met the much older forces of power. Often power that was decaying, Desperate to keep its ascendancy. These strange days did not just happen. We and those in power created them together. 1950s, as the British Empire was falling apart, there was a growing sense that something was badly wrong under the surface. There was a feeling of unease, that despite all the reforms after the Second World War and the welfare state, the old forms of power had not gone away. And neither had the violence and the corruption that had always been a part of that power.
1: The court opens with the traditional reading of names, and the wide experience available to the bank is apparent. Mr Cobbold, Mr Miners,
0: Sir Charles Hambro... Senior Director, Merchant... The bankers in the City of London had been at the very heart of the empire. In 1958, two of the most powerful of them, Lord Kindersley and William Keswick, were accused of using insider information to make millions for themselves.
1: Lord Kindersley. Chairman of Rills-Royce, merchant banker. Mr Keswick. Hudson's Bay Company, and Far Eastern merchant.
0: The evidence against them was very strong. But when Keswick was shown the evidence, he dismissed it with a phrase that became notorious. It is difficult, he said, to remember conversations one has while shooting on a grouse moor. A government inquiry said the two men were obviously innocent. At the same time, reports had started to come back from one of the last parts of the empire, Kenya, that seemed to show that those in charge had gone out of control. They had been fighting a liberation movement called the Mau Mau. The reports said that hundreds of thousands of Kenyans had been put into special camps where they were going to be psychologically adjusted. The British were trying to manipulate what their chief psychologist called the African mind. But what then happened in the camps turned into a frenzied madness. The British used mass torture and killing as they desperately tried to hold on to power. The government in London denied all the accusations, but the rumours of violence and horror continued. And what had also not gone away was the fear and hatred inside the minds of many of the British, of the others, the people the British had ruled over, who were now coming to what they had been told was the homeland. Now listen carefully to this Indian's conversation with a white barber when he entered a saloon with a BBC radio microphone in his pocket.
2: No.
3: What's the matter?
4: No. uh, uh, No.
3: anything, Anything wrong? Yes.  – Bus, what is it? – I said no. – But I like to know what is what is I'm the matter? Closed. Well, it's another half an hour, Jack. Well,
4: –
3: But you going to put the clothes on outside, in the window, do you?
4: Well,
3: – you clear off. – If you give me any reason why, boss, what is the matter? – Then I shall go if you get to tell me... – I'm – not close. You're not closed you? – You're not clo- closed yet. Well, – Those
0: who came from the Empire to Britain were shocked by the strange country they found. Michael de Freitas had come from Trinidad. He had grown up with a picture of a strong and confident homeland at the centre of the Empire. Instead, what he found was what seemed to him a sad and frightened country.
2: You must remember that that when we came to this country, we were not travelling to a foreign country. We were taught, I was taught when I was a young man, that my country, Trinidad, was an extension of this one. We were weaned on the concept of the empire. When I was a young boy, I stood in 90 degrees of sun day after day and sang all kind of silly things like God Save the Queen, Land of Hope and Glory, Britannia Rule the Waves, with the greatest of fervor and believed every word of it. To come here and discover that not only wasn't I not travelling to the capital of the whole thing, which we were led to believe was so, but in actual fact we weren't wanted. has been a very shattering blow. Many people in this country who think that we are very hateful are so wrong. You see, this is the great mystery. When you came here, you say you found you weren't wanted. Why then did you stay? Why did you choose to stay here? This was the heartland of the whole thing. And one hoped, against hope, that what one saw was not right.
0: dong's wife was going mad. She was called Jiang Qing. She lived alone surrounded by pet monkeys and nurses who she was convinced were conspiring against her. Those in charge of the revolution in China had completely marginalized her. She was too dangerous, they thought, to be allowed anywhere near her husband or power. They had even sent her to Moscow to be locked in a sanatorium with real and imagined illnesses. But now, Zhang Cheng's husband was facing disaster. The revolution had led to horror. 30 million people had died from starvation in the past three years. The other leaders wanted to get rid of him. And suddenly, he called for her. Ching was an extraordinary person. She believed in nothing except the power of her will to shape reality. She had begun as an actor in films in Shanghai in the 1930s. The other actors looked down at her for her driving ambition.
3: She liked to be on the top, you see, always. She's a very ambitious woman, and uh, she liked to be at top, and she uh, plays with, you know, with all the old directors, cameramans, make them, in, make, make them, you know, pay attention, you see, and interest in her, so she can have better part of the film. She married a, a, a quite famous writer called Tang Na, and uh, after married, uh, she, uh, she doesn't feel very satisfied about her husband because her husband is not a very, very strong man. And she left him, and he jumped to the river, and then the, the water was very cold, so he jumped up again, you see. <laughs> so... Uh, you mean he tried uh,
5: to commit suicide? Yes,
3: he's trying to commit suicide. After
0: the suicide attempt, Zhang Ching wrote a long letter to her husband. It said she was leaving him and also explained why with an extraordinary openness. There were powerful forces inside her, she said, that kept driving her towards fame and power. And it was only those forces that held her together psychologically. Nothing must hold them back. It ended, what matters is that you remember me as a woman who never caves in before anyone and who will never bear to be treated as inferior to men. But Zhang Qing failed to become a star. The men who ran the studios scorned her ambition. Her most famous part was as a supporting actor in a film called Bloodshed on Wolf Mountain. The star of the film was called Li Lily. Jiang <laughs> Ching was convinced that Li was trying to upstage her all the time and she became the focus of all Jiang Qing's anger over her treatment by the Shanghai establishment. and disillusioned, Jiang Qing left Shanghai and travelled to join the Communist resistance on a remote mountain in Yunnan. The camp was an intense, exciting place, and many of the young revolutionaries had affairs. Sex was called undisciplined guerrilla warfare. But when Jiang Qing started an affair with the leader, Mao Zedong, that was different. She was scorned by the other revolutionaries as a social climbing upstart. Then it got worse. Mao announced that he was going to divorce his wife and marry Jiang Qing. The other communist leaders were horrified. They saw Jiang Qing as a dangerous, destructive force because she was driven by a fierce, radical individualism that threatened their collective dream. In the communist structure, everyone was part of a unit. She insisted, I am a unit of one. No-one could work out what to do. They even went and asked Stalin in Moscow for his advice. He said, let them marry. But Jiang Qing must sign a document promising to refrain from political activity for 30 years. She signed, but she was furious with the men who now controlled her. They even tracked down and destroyed prints of her old films because they didn't fit with the image of Mao's wife. Her fury grew. Jiang Qing wanted power on her own behalf, as an individual. And she wanted revenge. Now, 20 years later, in 1959, Mao was facing disaster, and he was calling for her. In America, the idea of individualism had become central to the politics of the Cold War. What are you, bulletproof? Get out from behind that tree. Because it was what defined the United States against the collective ideology of Russia. At the heart of it was the picture of a strong, confident individual living an independent life in the new giant suburbs outside the old cities. My gun won't shoot that far. But there was a weakness, because the people in the suburbs were alone. And in their isolation, away from the old communities, they started to become fearful and lost. Out of these fears came a paranoia that was fueled by groups on the extreme right, like the John Birch Society.
4: And to the republic for which it stands, one, One nation, nation, under God, God. The
0: They said that the American government had been taken over by hidden groups, controlled by the communists. And at the end of the 1950s, a theory spread like wildfire through the suburbs that President Eisenhower himself had really been put into power by the communists. He is a dedicated, conscious agent of the Russians, the head of the John Birch Society said. That conclusion is based on detailed evidence so extensive that it is beyond any reasonable doubt. But this paranoia was not a new thing. An influential political scientist called Richard Hofstadter published an article that caused a sensation. He said that there had always been a dark paranoia built into America from the very start. The first settlers had come from Europe to America to flee from the corruption of power in the old world. But although they had got away from the old power, they hadn't got away from their suspicious minds. And alone, out in the vast wilderness of the new America, that led them to imagining dark, hidden conspiracies in their own government, far away in Washington. One of the first of these, in the early 19th century, said that a secret group from Europe called the Bavarian Illuminati were running a giant conspiracy in America to destroy the new democracy. In reality, the Illuminati had been a utopian movement who wanted to replace religion with reason. But instead, they now became the first of a series of frightening suspicions that fed off the isolation of the settlers in the New World. The paranoia in the suburbs, Hofstadter said, is just part of a much larger darkness built into the very structure of America itself that was feeding, yet again, on people's separateness and isolation. But in the same suburbs, there was a new movement rising up that was going to confront and challenge these fears. It was driven by a radical individualism that said that you, as an individual, can shape the world the way you want it to be, not accept what the dark fears tell you it is. It would be one of the main foundations of the counterculture movement that was going to spread throughout the West. But now it was just beginning, born out of odd moments across the suburbs of California. One night, Kerry Thornley went with his friend, Greg Hill, to a bowling alley. They started to discuss reality. Thornley insisted that there was a fixed order to the universe, but Greg said that the universe was chaos, and it was human thought that projected an order onto the chaos
6: sitting around in a bowling alley in 1958 to be exact, somewhere in the vicinity of Whittier, California, and we were uh, discussing uh, philosophy and we are talking about order and chaos. Gregg's theory was that order was projected on the universe, that it didn't exist at all, that it was a creation of the human mind, that order was entirely in perception and had nothing to do with what was going on out there in a completely chaotic universe.
0: Thornley was inspired by this. And together, he and Greg Hill decided to set up a movement dedicated to the idea of chaos. They called it Discordianism. Underlying it was the belief that individuals had the power inside themselves to bring order and meaning to the chaos, not the old systems of power that created the fear and suspicion. But then, an extraordinary coincidence happened that was going to lead Thornley back towards that darkness in America. Thornley was sent to do service with the Marines. And at the camp, he met another recruit who seemed to embody the figure of the free independent individual he so admired, because he refused to bow to the power of the officers. He was called Lee Harvey Oswald, and they became close friends. Thornley had read the novels of Ayn Rand, and he decided he was going to write a novel with Oswald as the central figure, a hero of this new age. But then suddenly, Oswald defected to the Soviet Union, and things became very strange. It seemed that the reality outside was even more chaotic than he had imagined.
6: It was really a a weird experience for me, because I was writing this novel uh, based on Oswald. When Oswald defected to the Soviet Union, I decided to write a novel about a Marine who becomes disenchanted with the U.S. and goes to the Soviet Union. And so it was like the hero, and I didn't like Kennedy. I was extremely anti-Kennedy myself, because I was so much into Ayn Rand the laissez-faire capitalism, objectivism. And Kennedy was the arch-villain of, of, our, uh, of our movement at that time. And uh, it was like the hero of my novel jumped up off the pages of my book and shot the president and it was it was it, it was very weird
0: The British Empire was now finally collapsing and the last colonies being given their independence. In the homeland, England, the old structure of power remained intact. And not only in the institutions, but inside people's heads as well. The old attitudes of power were still deeply embedded in the minds of the establishment who dominated the country. Those in charge demanded obedience. Not just from those they governed or employed, but also from their wives. They expected them to submit too. And
7: again.
6: <laughs>
0: Sandra Paul had grown up in Africa and the Far East. Her father had been a doctor in the Royal Air Force. She came back to England and became a successful model. Then she met Robin Douglas Hume. He was at the heart of the ruling class. His uncle had been prime minister.
1: She was incredibly beautiful. She had a a tremendous quality of innocence. And um, she was, I thought, a vulnerable creature in a highly suspect world, the world of models and fashion which uh, I despise then, and I despise even more now. Um, And so in a sense, maybe I was trying to rescue her from what I thought was going to be a decline in her character uh, due to her career. Can you take that leg
2: just a little wider, out that way? I sort of really... That's
1: right. But she was earning considerably more than you were, and presumably this money was useful in setting up your home, so I suppose you could hardly be resentful about it. I was earning considerably less, yes. They
0: married, and Robin douglas Hume insisted that they went to live in the country. Sandra Paul agreed, but she found that he also insisted that she should stop her modelling career and remain in the country while he went to their house in London.
7: Then, eventually, Robin wanted to be in the... London more and he didn't really want the routine so much, he wanted to be going out to parties on his own and when he realised that if he was in London I would be in London too um, this meant that he had to share his life and he was beginning to want to be just a little independent Do you mean he was getting bored with you? Yes probably, because I used to Want to know what he'd been doing or where he'd been, and he didn't want to say, and so we'd have a row But just because I was he, I was wanting to know about his life, and he thought that I shouldn't have to know everything about his life. Um, I felt that when you were ma- married, that you should share things, and and you should have a right really to know what your husband was doing, even if you wanted to make it up, he should take the trouble to make something up to tell you
4: so you could put it out of your mind.
0: Michael De Freitas was now working for a notorious landlord in Notting Hill called Peter Rackman. Rackman owned hundreds of flats in decaying houses in Notting Hill, which he rented out to prostitutes and immigrants. De Freitas's job was to be Rackman's enforcer, often using threats and violence, including breaking in and wrecking the flats.
1: When we come back in the night, we see everything outside. All the floor mash up. All the wardrobe, all the chair, all the table, all the clothes on the floor, dirty. He take my brother's tools and mash up all the floor. He pull up all the light. No water.
0: I say, well, 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 well. Michael de Freitas was fascinated by his new employer because Peter Rachman was far more than just the brutal gangster that he was portrayed as. He had lived an extraordinary life. He had been born in Lvov, on the border of Ukraine and Poland. Then the Nazis invaded and Rachman was arrested and forcibly sterilised because he was Jewish but he managed to escape. He fled into Russia, but was captured again, this time by the Russians, who sent him to the labour camps in Siberia, where he watched people survive by killing each other and then eating the human flesh. But then the Nazis invaded Russia, and suddenly, Rachman became Russia's ally. He was sent off to fight with the Free Polish Army, and he ended up after the war in London, stateless and a complete outsider. That horror meant that Rackman judged nobody. For him, the differences between right and wrong were luxuries for the privileged. In the face of horror, everyone was the same, focused entirely on survival. But the English judged him. He was hated with an overwhelming disgust as the face of evil. The Freitas believed that this revealed something that was hidden in English society.
1: We start with the story of a man. Let me say straight away, a sordid story that some of you may well not want the younger children to hear. This is Peter Rackman, one of Britain's big-time 20th-century racketeers. On the
0: surface, there was the overt racism against the immigrants that Rackman was bringing into Notting Hill. A large number of people at Notting Hill are trying to mix the two races, are trying to bring about a coffee-coloured mulet population in Britain, then I regard it as no disgrace with the white defence league to come on the scene and stand up for white interests. But de Freitas saw something deeper. Rackman's property empire was a brutal and violent one. But it was doing something that polite English society completely refused to do. He was giving people on the very margins of society, prostitutes and black immigrants, somewhere to live. His empire shone a harsh light on the hypocrisy of the nice people at the top of English society who would never think of themselves as racist, but wanted nothing to do with the people he was moving into Notting Hill. And they hated him for it. This was captured in an interview that the BBC did with the local upmarket journalists in Notting Hill. About the day, Rackman visited their offices.
1: What struck me about him was his extraordinary sense of being so evil. This was a really evil man. We'd heard a lot about Rackman. And finally, here he was sitting in this room. But I don't think any of us were prepared to see such a a grotesque individual. Kind of gravelly type of voice, a sort of Almost a diseased voice, if you like. The kind of thing which went, ''Oh, Mr Denny, uh, what do you want to see me for?'' ''I mean, uh, I've done nothing.''
0: De Freitas decided that there was a fear in England that went far deeper than just the working-class racism. That behind the polite veneer of the middle classes, there was a hard ruthlessness and a suspicion of others. De Freitas gave it a name. He called it Englishism. It came, he said, from both an anger and a melancholy at the loss of their empire. Then Peter Rackman died of a heart attack, and Michael De Freitas suddenly found that he was the new face of evil. Mr De
1: Freitas, why will you not take the rent from this man here?
2: I don't own the
1: property. But your name's on the rent book. Is it? Well, you know it is. We can probably show it to you. Come here, Mr. De Freitas, because I need to know the facts about this. Why
2: will you, Why
1: will you not take his rent from him?
2: Mr. Barrett, Would you kindly leave You know, let me.
0: Zhang Qing came in secret to Mount Lushan to meet Mao Zedong, where he was confronting the other revolutionaries. She was determined to stop them from overthrowing Mao. Many of them were the men who had forced her into her strange, isolated life. And she hated them. Zhang Qing was also convinced that these men weren't really revolutionaries. They were actually ghosts from the past who, without realising it, were destroying the revolution. Because their minds were still possessed by the patterns of thought of the old, decaying and corrupt empire that had ruled China for 300 years. Mao pretended to give in to the demands of the other revolutionaries. But he told Jiang Qing to go to Shanghai and to prepare quietly for a new kind of revolution, one that would sweep the opposition away. Jiang Qing returned to where she had started, the studios of Shanghai. But now she was in control. And the new revolution was going to be driven by her self-expression and her imagination that had been stifled back then. The unit of one was going to take over the revolution and reshape the minds of the Chinese people.
4: Because
7: she could control the people's minds, she could control their images, she was... She became, uh, she became the mistress of the arts and of propaganda and culture. <laughs> she does have great personal charm. It's a, it's a severe charm. It's the charm of uh, being able to do what she wanted and to say what she wanted to, and in a society where most people say what they're expected to say, most people express the current political line. Her daring to reflect upon the past, to speak extensively about herself, and to make judgments of all sorts was was extraordinary. And um, she's a woman of many parts, so, and and, and needless to say, her relationship to the chairman was always the trump card.
0: Jiang Qing began by taking old Chinese operas and reworked them, so they became dramatic melodramas about the need to struggle against the evil forces still hidden in Chinese society. <laughs> <laughs> Hate was a key word in the script. It must be shouted, she said, as if it was a grenade that you were hurling at the enemy. And never forget, she told the heroine, that beauty is less important than will and power. But the operas were just the start. Jiang Qing's really was to turn the whole of China itself into a giant melodrama, to work millions of people up into an intense frenzy that would have the power to smash through the old corrupt ideas that were still lodged in people's heads and break through to a new kind of society. But at the same time, Jiang Qing herself was driven by old hatreds from her own past. And she was also going to turn that frenzy into a crusade of revenge against her old enemies, including Lee Lilly, who had upstaged her in Bloodshed on Wolf Mountain. Living quietly in New York, completely forgotten, was an Irish woman called Ethel Boole, who personified the very opposite of what Jiang Qing believed. Because Boole thought that the way to change the world was to give yourself up to the force of revolution, to surrender your individual self and your identity to the dream of a better future for others. At the end of the 19th century, Ethel Boole had gone to Russia as a young girl, and become involved with the revolutionaries in St Petersburg. And she wrote a novel called The Gadfly. It told a powerful romantic story of a young girl who sacrificed everything for revolution. She then married a Polish revolutionary called Wilfrid Voynich. And in the 1920s, they went to live in New York, where he worked as an antiquarian bookseller. And Ethel Bull forgot about revolution. But in 1959, when the Bolshoi Ballet came to New York, the dancers were astonished to find that she was alive, and they rushed to visit her, because Ethel Boo, without her realising it, had become a hero of the Russian Revolution. She discovered that her novel had inspired millions of young revolutionaries in the 1920s to rise up and fight for the revolution inspired by the idea of surrendering themselves to a grand historic cause. Then the same had happened in China. Again, millions of young revolutionaries had carried the gadfly in their backpacks as they fought to create a new kind of future. Now, Boulle was living alone, and she had inherited a mysterious book from her husband. It was called the Voynich Manuscript, and it was written in a language no-one has been able to decipher. But one ballerina in the Bolshei group didn't go to visit Ethel Boulle. She was called Maya Plisetskaya. She was the most famous ballerina in the world, and she hated the communist system. Kazetskaya's father had been executed by firing squad during the purges of the 1930s. Her mother had been sent to a prison in the wastes of Siberia. As she became famous, she was watched all the time by agents from the KGB. She couldn't trust anyone. Everyone around her had been told to inform on her. And she hated what she called the men with sweaty faces, the party bosses who leered at her as she danced. In private, Maya Plisetskaya wrote out her own manifesto. I don't know about other people, she wrote. I'll say it for myself. I don't want to be a slave. I don't want people whom I don't know to decide my fate. I don't want a leash on my neck. I don't want a cage, even if it is a platinum one. I don't want to be rejected or branded. I don't want to hide what I am thinking. I don't want to bow my head, and I won't do it. That's not what I was born for. Both Plisetskaya and Zhang Cheng were part of the new individualism that was rising up everywhere, while Ethel Bull's collective vision was dying. But at the same time, a new revolution was about to begin. It would offer a dream of liberation and freedom for the new individuals. But it would end by controlling them. And in a strange twist, the person whose ideas would guide that revolution was Ethel Boole's father. He was a mathematician from the 19th century called George Boole. Boole had been a deeply religious man, and one afternoon in the 1840s, as he walked across a field near Doncaster, a thought had flashed into his head that he believed was a religious vision. Boole suddenly saw how you could use mathematics to unlock the mysterious processes of human thought. The same symbols that were used in algebra could be used to describe what went on inside people's heads as they followed a train of thought, expressing all the twists and turns in simple binary form. If this, then that. If that, then not this. And in 1854, Boole wrote a book that caused a sensation. It was called An Investigation of the Laws of Thought. Its aim, to investigate the fundamental laws of those operations of the mind by which reasoning is performed. Boole showed how even abstract concepts like virtue and passion could be put into equations and then the symbols used to follow a pattern of thought to its conclusion. Boole was driven by an almost messianic belief that he had been allowed a glimpse by God into the truth of the human mind. But there were those who doubted this. The philosopher Bertrand Russell was astonished by the brilliance of Boole's mathematics. But he didn't believe that what Boole had discovered was anything to do with human thought. Human beings, Russell said, do not think like that. What Boole was really doing was something else. Throughout the British Empire, science had played a powerful role, which has been wiped and forgotten today. Its job had been to create abstract systems to catalogue and order the chaotic reality that the British ruled over, to turn it into something that could be managed and controlled. It ranged from making maps of what was called the dark interior to cataloguing millions of species of animals and insects, and studying and categorising different human types. And what Boole was doing was the next step in that process. He was taking the chaotic reality of human thought and making a simplified, rational map of that other dark interior, the human mind, so it could be managed and controlled. But in the 19th century, no-one could see any way of using the system that Boole had created and it languished and was quietly forgotten, and the British Empire began to collapse. One day, Sandra Poole discovered her husband having sex in the back of a car with the Marchioness of Londonderry. It was the final straw and she decided the marriage would have to end. She told Robin Douglas Hume that she wanted a divorce, but he refused. So she said that she would seek a petition for cruelty. It meant that many of the details of their marriage and the struggles between them would be made public.
7: And he couldn't bear the thought of going through a divorce, so he refused to give me a divorce. He blamed me for... um, dragging the whole thing out in, um... Well, I don't think he blamed me coherently. He just blamed me because I divorced him. And he couldn't understand that there wasn't any other way. I... I, Well, I don't think I was unfair because it was the only thing I could do. And I did think that it it was hopeless for us to stay in a separated state. Hopeless for me. I I was being selfish. I wanted to be free.
4: You had to be fairly ruthless.
7: Yes, I had to be ruthless in order to be
1: free. And she insisted on continuing with this uh, petition for cruelty. Now, when I received the petition for cruelty, I I can only describe one's feelings to you as if, uh, you know, a small bomb had gone off inside your head. Because... um, It chapterized the marriage almost day by day, and incidentally letter by letter, roneoed in the most unpleasant and vicious terms with me as the uh, aggressor and the the cruel one. Five years of one's life, say 70% of which were very happy, reduced to uh, a great wad of foolscap, typed out by leering little (coughs) clerks in solicitors' offices. Your letters from the moment you'd met, typed out, roneoed, your letters to your mother, her letters to her mother, her mother's letters to me, It was all right, you felt, to to be regarded as an adulterer, but you couldn't bear to be regarded as cruel. I couldn't bear her to to put a kind of tombstone on this marriage, reading in the way that that petition read.
0: For men like Robin Douglas Hume, the expectation of power had been deeply embedded inside their minds. But as the world had changed around them, and real power ebbed away, they were left with a terrible melancholy that, in some, would turn to despair. A year after the filming, Robin Douglas Hume committed suicide.
5: Sag mir, wo die Mädchen sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sag mir, wo die Mädchen sind, was ist geschehen? Sag mir, wo die Mädchen sind, Männer nahmen sie geschwind. Wann wird man je verstehen, wann wird man je bestehen. Sag mir, wo die Männer sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sag mir, wo die Männer sind, was ist geschehen? Sag mir, wo die Männer sind, zogen vor der Krieg beginnt. Wann man je verstehen? Wann wird man je
0: verstehen? Kerry Thornley had left California and gone to live in New Orleans, where he worked in a bar. The movement that he and his friend Greg Hill had started, Discordianism, was beginning to grow, spreading by word of mouth. Like much of the new counterculture, it was against all politics. It distrusted all the old systems of power, left and right, because they were just trying to force you into their version of reality. Thornley also published his novel, with Lee Harvey Oswald as the central figure. It was called the Idle Warriors. But New Orleans was also the city where Lee Harvey Oswald had lived before the Kennedy assassination. And as a result, Thornley came to the notice of the man who was going to be the main creator of the JFK conspiracy theory. He was the district attorney of New Orleans, called Jim Garrison. Garrison said that Oswald had just been part of a giant conspiracy that included the CIA, big business, the news media and anti-Castro Cubans, who together had killed the president.
1: There's no question about that. There was a conspiracy. A number of men were involved. An apparatus which was lethal in nature, uh, of which Lee Harvey, Harvey Oswald was a part, assigned a role essentially as decoy. Now, don't ask me what the organisation is, because I can't say. But the implication clearly is the Central Intelligence Agency, your own security organisation in the United States. It almost sounds like that, doesn't it? I have no comment about that.
0: Jim Garrison believed that the modern democratic system in America was just a facade, that behind it was another secret system of power that really controlled the country. But you could never discover it through normal means, because it was so deeply hidden. Garrison wrote a memo to his staff explaining how you could uncover this secret world. He called it time and propinquity. You didn't bother with meaning or with logic, he said, because that will always be hidden. Instead, you look for patterns, strange coincidences and links that may seem to have no meaning, but are actually telltale signs on the surface of the hidden system of power underneath. This theory was going to have a very powerful effect in the future, because it would lead to a profound shift in how many people understood the world. Because what it said was that in a dark world of hidden power, you couldn't expect everything to make sense. That it was pointless to try and understand the meaning of why something happened, because that would always be hidden from you. What you looked for were the patterns. And when Garrison read Kerry Thornley's novel, he saw a pattern. Not only had Thornley been in the Marines with Oswald and written a novel about him, but he had come to live in the same city that Oswald had lived in before the assassination. And in 1967, Garrison accused Thornley of being part of the conspiracy. Thornley was furious. He knew that Garrison was wrong but he also hated the very idea of conspiracy theories. He believed that they were one of the ways those in power controlled you. Conspiracy theories made you believe that there were hidden forces that really controlled the world. And that made you, as an individual, feel weak and powerless. Suspicion, he believed, was just another form of control. Thornley wanted to find ways to free people from that kind of conditioning that held them back as individuals.
6: There are ways of deconditioning people, Uh, and uh, this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in finding some technique by which great masses of people can be uh, broken out of their authoritarian conditioning all at once to figure out exactly what that type of enlightenment is, that type of liberation from authoritarian conditioning is, and how to achieve it uh, on a wholesale basis.
0: Thornley was right that most of what Garrison alleged was complete fantasy. Despite all the patterns, he could produce no evidence of a hidden conspiracy. But what Thornley didn't realise was that, at the same time, there was another very real conspiracy being run by the American government. And its aim was to try and do the very same thing as he wanted to do. The Central Intelligence Agency was trying to find ways to wipe the past from people's minds, to see if they could free them from the conditioning that had been implanted there. Psychologists working for the CIA had come to believe that individuals were far weaker than they had believed. And they wanted to see if they could implant new patterns of thought in their minds.
1: The image of the human being that was being built up at that particular time was that there was a great deal of vulnerability in every human being. And that that vulnerability could be manipulated to program somebody to be something that I wanted them to be, and they didn't want to be. That you could manipulate people in such a way that they could be automatons, if you will, for whatever your own purposes were. This was the image that people thought was possible.
0: The CIA set up a secret project called MK Ultra. It was led by a psychiatrist called Ewan Cameron, who worked in a hospital in Montreal called the Allen Memorial. He took patients and, without telling them, experimented to see if he could wipe what he called the sick memories from their minds. To do this, he used repeated electroshocks and massive doses of LSD.
8: They shipped me up to what they called the sleep room and they gave me all of these electro. Convulsive shock treatments and megadoses of drugs and LSD and all of that, and I have no memory of any of that. N- nothing in the, in, of, of that time in the Allen Memorial or, or any of my life previous to that. All gone, wiped.
0: Some members of Discordianism were working at Playboy magazine. And Thornley decided that he was going to use Playboy magazine to start an experiment that would make people see how absurd all conspiracy theories really were. He called it Operation Mindfuck. In 1969, he and Greg Hill began Operation Mindfuck by placing a false letter in the Playboy letters page. They put it between another letter asking if gun fanatics had small penises and one from a man asking about the physical danger to his testicles from heavy petting. Thornley's fake letter asked whether all the political assassinations in America were really being masterminded by a single secret society, and the society it named was the Illuminati. It said that the Illuminati were behind all the chaos and the fear that was now gripping America. He and the other Discordians then proceeded to spread this idea all across America through the counterculture, in magazines and books, and even in plays. Thornley's aim was to try and break the spell of conspiracy theories by making people see the absurdity of believing them. And he had chosen the Illuminati for the experiment because no-one could possibly believe that an 18th-century organisation from Bavaria was really, in the second half of the 20th century, the secret rulers of the modern world. It was clearly ridiculous. Dr Cameron's experiments were a disaster. His brutal technique succeeded only in wiping the minds of those he experimented on. He then found he could put nothing back he totally failed to implant any new memories or any new ways of seeing the world. His patients found themselves in a world that had no meaning any longer.
8: When I was discharged from the Allen Memorial, I felt like, a, like an alien from another world. Visiting this world, I knew I was different and I didn't know how to become like everybody else. And it was a very lonely, scary place to be. This is your husband. What's what's husband? What's, What's making love?
0: In the world of individualism that was about to come, psychology was going to play a powerful role because it said it could help to change what was inside people's minds. But what Cameron and the CIA had done showed in a dramatic and extreme way the weakness of this. They had assumed that most of what people felt came from within them, and to make them happier, you just had to alter what was inside their brains. What was forgotten was the other view, that what shapes how people feel is the society around them. Above all, the structure of power that not only controls their lives, but also how they feel. And if you want to change the way people feel, you have to find a way to change that too.
8: Memory is wrapped in what society has decided we should feel like. You should cry at funerals. I found myself not crying at a funeral, and I felt just fine. And I thought, gee, there's something the matter with me. I'm not crying. I should cry. Everybody else is crying. But, but there wasn't that, that need to.
0: Michael de Freitas decided that he was going to become a revolutionary. He was going to challenge and expose the corrupt old structures of power that he believed still haunted and controlled the minds of the English people, even though their empire was
2: gone. I can't live in this system. I don't like it. I don't want it. I want it destroyed. Everything, down to the ground. The lot, ashes, that's what I want.
0: All three, Zhang Qing, Michael DeFreitas, and Kerry Thornley, knew that their struggle was with the forces from the old power of the past that they believed were still lodged in people's minds. But at the same time, quietly rising up was a new system that seemed as if it would never have to face that struggle because it would be completely free of the past. The laws of human thought that George Boo had created had become the central structure of all thinking machines. Computers. Because it fitted perfectly with the binary switching system inside them, either zero or one. And it was used by the machines to create endless branching pathways of binary logic, called algorithms. Out of that was going to come the dream of artificial intelligence. Machines that could think independently. That could then order and manage the world as a rational system, not driven by the dangerous ideologies of the past. But back in the 1960s, as the engineers began to build the first neural networks, what they had forgotten was that the system of thought they were creating inside the machines did have its own history that it had been born out of a time when science had become deeply involved in questions of power and control in the British Empire. And that what lay behind the computer logic was the aim of simplifying human thought, which would finally allow you to colonise the last free outpost, the human mind. But unlike the old empires, where power was visible, this power would be hidden in remote places, in the servers. But something else from the past would also find its way into those servers. In the political and economic chaos of the early 1970s, conspiracy theories were going to spread like wildfire through the counterculture. As they did, the fake conspiracies about the Illuminati and the secret rulers of the world that Kerry Thornley thought that no-one could ever believe began to get mixed up with the true conspiracies, like MKUltra. And more and more people began to follow Jim Garrison's theory of time and propinquity, looking for patterns of a hidden power in America, not for logic or meaning any longer. And when the internet was created, almost immediately, those patterns of suspicion would move into the data and multiply endlessly across the system. And that dark paranoia, that 200 years before had spread across the prairies and the mountains among isolated settlers, now spread across the virtual world, among isolated individuals sitting alone in front of their screens and suspicion and distrust crept back into what was going to be the new system of power.